Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Thank you so much for coming back to Body Justice. I have a super interesting talk planned for you all today. This is the topic of intergenerational trauma and eating disorders. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Carolyn Ross, who really stood out to me because she is a medical doctor that talks about the effects of intergenerational trauma on our mental health, physical health, and she focuses on eating disorders, addictions, and trauma. She's going to talk a little bit about her personal journey, um, discovering the effects of intergenerational trauma on her own healing path. So please stay tuned and go check out her website, carolynrossmd.com. She's got a variety of courses and books on the topics of eating disorders and recovery. She takes a non-diet and health at every size approach, and she's also super committed to social justice. So definitely go check her out. Again, you can always find me on Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist, and you can check out my online course, which is a low-cost online self-paced course to help you fast-track your recovery journey. And as always, I would love if you would go leave me a review on Apple. This helps the podcast get out to more people. So without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Ross. All right. So Dr. Ross, can you tell listeners a little bit about you and what you're passionate about? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm a physician who specializes in treating eating disorders, addictions, and trauma. And most of the work that I do is through a trauma lens. So I also have a online program for people with binge eating disorder that um, is a complete non-diet approach towards those disorders. And it's all online and it has been for 2016, since 2016. I know there are a lot of new programs sprouting up, but we've been around for a while and doing really well. So um, other than that, I say that my passion has been in, in working mainly with women although I have enjoyed working with men when I worked as a head of eating disorder programs. Um, But um, I really enjoy working with women and that's what I'm mainly doing now. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's great. I, so I didn't know you were a medical doctor. That's really awesome. I feel like it's actually really hard to find medical doctors that specialize in eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. Because just because of the politics in medicine, psychiatry has kind of co-opted eating disorders under its, its wings, so to speak. And But when I started, everybody was a medical doctor. It was rare to see a psychiatrist treating eating disorders. And I think that that's going to have to happen more in the future as we 
began in medicine to realize that eating disorders are have uh, their medical illnesses that have a you know strong nutritional basis. I know there was a letter published recently. Uh, I'm sorry, an article published recently by uh, uh, Cynthia Bulick, who's one of the uh, researchers in the eating disorder world, and she was calling out psychiatry for the you know poor the treatment of anorexia nervosa uh, and ignoring the nutritional basis like you know women with anorexia are starving and that starvation causes or exacerbates anxiety depression cognitive problems all of that like we can't you know the body can't function without nourishment and so if we keep giving just throwing pills at it which is what we're doing, then the relapse rate will continue to be really high. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. And that's why I, I love like approaches like family-based treatment that really prioritize um, the re-nourishing before doing any of the deeper work because yeah, you can't really get there until the person is really resourced and part of that is nourished. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one thing that intrigued me about your work is one of your focus areas being intergenerational trauma. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And maybe if you can even define what that is for listeners. Sure. Yeah, that's been, uh, you know, since January of 2020, I did a, a TEDx presentation, TEDx Pleasant Grove on the gifts of intergenerational trauma. And I've been very interested in that because in my own family, I saw that there's, you know, so much trauma dating all the way back to slavery, where we can, you know, we can um, track uh, our, you know, our family's history all the way back to slave times. And just realizing that the effects of trauma can be passed from generation to generation. And this has been studied starting in with offspring of the Holocaust, where they were able to see that particularly when the parents, one or both parents had PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, that their offspring would also have increased risk for um, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and a host of other uh, characteristics that were not seen in offspring of uh, you know, Jewish parents who had not been in the Holocaust. So it's been going on since the 1960s, this research. And now we're beginning to see a really important development that's uh, been recognized in the last, I don't know, three to five years, uh, which is the impact of epigenetics. And epigenetics is recognizing that while trauma cannot change the DNA, uh, because it takes generations and generations for DNA to change. However, it can change the expression of a gene so that a gene for, for example, for um, substance use disorder or anxiety or depression or even heart disease could be turned on by especially early childhood trauma or childhood adversity. And once that gene then is turned on, that then can be passed to the next generation and the next and the next. So we're actually seeing biochemical evidence of, of these epigenetic changes, which are, you know, it's pretty astounding because if you think about it, like 
when I started in medicine, no one thought that trauma had any impact on physical health. You know, it was all like, oh, well, trauma is a psychological problem. But the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study has pretty conclusively showed that childhood adversity, you know, and even adverse community adversity uh, increases risk for eating disorders, for um substance use disorders, ADD, ADHD, and then over 40 medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, like that is, you know, in medicine, that's a revolution for medical doctors to be paying attention to trauma. So Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to hear you're doing that work because I do think it's kind of, it's something I, I haven't heard from many doctors that consider the context of trauma and how that impacts our physiology yeah it's I I think it's a area of medicine that's pretty neglected but it's starting to actually gain a lot of momentum so I think you'll hear more about it in the future and historical trauma is a is also a component of this because for example in in the case of um, African Americans especially those who whose ancestors were brought here to be enslaved, that historical trauma caused also epigenetic effects, which we're now seeing in, you know, the third or fourth or whatever generations of the enslaved population. And we have other historical traumas, you know, the violent colonization of Native Americans is another example, as is the Holocaust, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned um, a little earlier that you got interested because of your own family history. And you mentioned like family history of being enslaved. Can you talk a little bit about that and how how you noticed intergenerational trauma showing up in, in your life? Yeah, I talked about this in my TEDx talk. Um, I, when I look at my family tree, I have seen that in every generation, at least one of the offspring is lost, lost to suicide, to, um, you know, to substance use disorders or mental illness. Uh, And so, you know, particularly in the generations in my own lifetime, you know, it's very, very clear that something's going on because we come from very highly educated, you know, um, progressive parents and grandparents and so on middle class, you know, we, we don't really, we shouldn't be seeing these kinds of effects. So it's very uh, startling to think of when you see every generation that something catastrophic is happening. And that's what, you know, kind of pointed me in that direction of like, wow, why is this going on? And then we look at the adverse experiences and historical trauma and how those can affect you know, certain vulnerable individuals in the family and lead to some of these trauma effects. And, and that's, uh, I think it, a lot of families may be having the same kind of stories, even though they don't, you know, they haven't connected the dots, basically. But, you know, there are other families who have these stories, and maybe they don't have historical trauma. But for example, uh, we know from the adult children of alcoholics uh, work that there are so many families where the grandparents, great-grandparents, parents 
or had a substance use disorder. And again, that's a that's really interesting because it's not 100% genetic. So there's genetics, but then there are also these epigenetic effects that are uh, causing the intergenerational trauma impact. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been reading the book, It Didn't Start With You. I don't know if you're uh-huh. familiar with that, but Heard of it. Talk, yeah, and they talk about how <clears throat> our genetic makeup was already influenced by our grandparents' generation because the embryo, and maybe you can elaborate on this better, but like the embryos that your grandmother carried um, had the cells that your mother has. And then since women were already born with all of our eggs, your cells were in that too. And when your mother um, was conceived. So yeah, whatever happened to your grandmother. it's just phenomenal to, you know, to think about that and to recognize. And that's one of the things when I go and speak about this topic, I encourage people to go back and get the stories of their ancestors before it's too late, because mm-hmm. you know many of them are now dying off. And I think um, certainly the last slaves have now died, but they had a huge um, kind of a program where they were going around interviewing last remaining slaves and that was within my lifetime that that was happening and you know finding out that their stories and what happened to them and what they remembered of their past and what they'd been told and so on and unfortunately for the enslaved people uh, who were brought here from Africa many of the families were broken apart and separated so a lot of those stories were lost but you know say Whenever I speak, I have people whose parents or grandparents or great grandparents came from Poland or Ireland or, you know, some other country and came to the United States. And uh, I, I remember very poignantly one of the guys in the audience I was speaking at saying that his grandparents had told him that they changed their Polish name because they were discriminated against so badly when they came to this country. Um, that Polish name kind of gave them away as being quote unquote foreign. And I think that's not an uncommon experience. And now you see what's happening at our borders right now. And just think about, you know, 20, 30, 40, one generation from now that those little kids who, who were traumatized at our border now have, you know, some trauma effects that are maybe passed on to their kids and may affect their health and well-being. So it's a, you know, it's an ongoing issue. And you also just think about the large groups of people who are coming forward and talking about sexual abuse, like the gymnast and some university athletes who were abused by, you know, um, their, their, their team positions and all of that. So it's, it's not uncommon. Trauma is very common. And that's why we need to be talking about it more. Absolutely. And it's, I like what you said about how this, the story, the narrative can get lost. Mm -hmm. What it reminded me of is like our body still holds that story, right? Like in within epigenetics and at the cellular level. And when, yeah, yeah, I've looked back on my own kind of family history and I've been able to connect the dots into some of, you know, I have really high anxiety and history of an eating disorder. And I was able to connect the dots like, oh, this, this really didn't start with me. And it, it almost helps you have a 
another layer of self-compassion for your struggle. Yeah. Like, well, a- we've, st- we've been saying for a long time that, you know, uh, people with, especially the stigmatized mental health disorders, like eating disorders and addictions, and even, you know, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, and so on, very highly stigmatized, but um, and often people are blamed for those, like, why don't you just eat? Or why don't you yeah. just not eat? <laughs> if yep. you're living in a larger body, why don't you just stop eating, push away from the table? And people say, well, what's wrong with you? When in fact, they should be saying what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Because that's where it starts is something happened. And then it changed something inside of you. And it compounded or worked together with something that it maybe came down in your epigenetics. So mm, agreed. And oh, it just like makes my blood girl when I hear people say stuff like snap out of it because oh, yeah. you and I probably can both attest to like mental illness is never an absence of logic. And in, in fact, like the people I meet with eating disorders or OCD or trauma, or even when I worked inpatient with things like schizophrenia and bipolar, some of the most intelligent people I've ever met. It's not a logic problem. It's something's happening in our brain and in our body. Yeah. And I think the brain has been so poorly understood that we haven't really known what these effects are. And when you think about anorexia and the fact that the brain actually uses, I think it's like 50% of all the nutrients we take in, Uh, And someone who is uh, with anorexia, who's in starvation, that that means the brain is really starving. And so you can't expect people to to be thinking clearly or to be able to take, um, you know, meaningful action when their brains are starved. And I think Mm -hmm. the same can be said about a lot of other mental health issues um, that we are not paying enough attention to what's going on in the brain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Um, how does intergenerational trauma affect people's relationship to food and their body? Well, that's a great question. And um, one thing that comes to mind is the, again, the offspring of Holocaust survivors. I think some of the research, particularly out of Israel, has shown an increase in eating disorders in that population. And I certainly have seen it in my own practice. I remember having a conversation with one of the therapists I worked with and saying, wow, we're getting so many patients who's, you know, have this history of the Holocaust in their, in their history. And they're coming in with anorexia um, in particular. And so I think there is, you know, again, that, change in epigenetics is a change that can affect, first of all, the incidence of anxiety, which is also associated with anorexia, as well as change, um, you know, the way in which the body responds to stress and put can put people on red alert, which can also have an effect on all of the hormones that control eating and feeding and so on. Um, the adverse childhood studies haven't really pointed to eating disorders in particular. However, there have been a number of uh, you know, research studies that have looked at trauma and eating disorders. 
And when I started in medicine several decades ago, uh, if you, if you said that you thought anorexia, people with anorexia had trauma, they would think you were, you know, crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're starting to see some of those same people <laughs> who are up on the stage saying, yeah, there is this link between trauma and anorexia. So I think, you know, more will be revealed on this as we get more into the biochemistry. But we do know that the, the trauma changes so many facets of our, you know, existence that um, I think that we'll be learning a lot more about that as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just anecdotally, like with the clients I work with, you know, I would say that 80% of my clients with eating disorders have a significant trauma history. It's yeah. the correlation is so strong and it is like a, it's a survival skill. Um, yeah. And if you add in the uh, people who have experienced neglect, it's more like 90%. Yeah. And, and then the studies really show that neglect is the number one childhood adversity. And what we often focus on things like childhood uh, sexual abuse or, you know, physical abuse or things like that. But neglect is the biggest problem of all. And I think many um, people don't ask about those kinds of things. And patients don't think that what they've gone through was any big deal because, you know, it was their family. They didn't know any different. Um, but, you know, there's so many stories when you get down to it that um, really show levels of trauma that may not be in the adverse childhood experiences study, but have really caused dramatic effects mm -hmm. in people's lives. Agreed. Yeah. And I know even from like my own family history, like, um, my grandparents' generation was born in Indonesia. And during World War II, they had to flee because it was a war zone. Mm. And they fled to Holland. And when they got to Holland, they were, my grandmother was in um, kind of like a work camp where they didn't really didn't treat people well, you know, and food mm -hmm. was scarce. And my grandfather was a prisoner of war. And he, I remember he's now passed, but he would tell me stories of like being fed extremely minimal amounts of food. Mm -hmm. And he's, he was always extremely thin um, and had this disordered relationship to food almost like he would not let us waste anything. Yeah. And um now when I've been learning about intergenerational trauma, I'm like, yeah, there's this history of food scarcity in my family. It makes sense why eating disorders have literally been in every woman, every oh, generation wow. of women in my family. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. So interesting to connect the dots. Yeah. Um, what do you, so how do you help people heal from intergenerational trauma? Yeah, I think you start with raising awareness. That's the first step. And then, as you say, it's, you know, Bessel van der Kolk wrote a whole book about this that, you know, the body keeps the score. Um, I think somatic therapies and, and reconnecting people with their bodies helps them to uh, begin the healing process. But the first thing is really helping them to understand where the trauma was and how it might have affected them on, on the deepest level. So I, I have kind of a a way of working with that in my program where um, I help people understand that the, 
you know, trauma causes a lot of toxic stress, which causes like overwhelming emotions or fight or flight or constantly being on red alert. And then as a child, when you've been traumatized, you come up with explanations for it, which we now call core beliefs. So people who've had trauma, you know, have feelings like I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough or I'm unlovable unless I'm fill in the blank, et cetera. And these core beliefs really run the show and are often very unconscious. So they lead to what people call self-sabotage, but which I call survival. You know, that's your survival self that got through all of the different experiences that you had. But then you're an adult and you think, oh, well, that doesn't matter. I don't have to look at that. That's in the past. And it, it's not in the past. It's always with you. I, I always say, wherever you go, you take your trauma with you. Mm-hmm. And you take it from childhood into adulthood. You take it into your relationships. You take it into your workplace and so on. So helping people to identify you know, how trauma has impacted them and then work on healing that trauma is, is the, the next step. Mm-hmm. And you know, also connecting the dots about how trauma impacts your eating behaviors, because that's, a, it has a, you know, f- food is the only thing usually available to little children in order to soothe themselves. Mm-hmm. And so being able to identify how you use food as a child or as a teenager, when you did experience adversity, and then how you're using food now, so. Mm-hmm. And I see so much impact on how, like body image, right? Like how people view their body after trauma. Yeah. Um, their body maybe feels, un- it feels unsafe, right? Maybe their maybe their body was what was harmed. And then there's this kind of survival response to like disconnect from the body and, and even loathe, self-loathing, you know, like, hating the body because of what happened. And what I always tell my clients is what I'm hearing you say is you hate what's happened to you, mm-hmm. but yeah. our psyche attaches onto something we can control like our body. Yeah. I, I like to say that the body image stuff is a red herring because it's really never about the body itself. It's about, you know, how you feel in your body, whether you feel unsafe or you feel your body is an adversary. It's let you down. Um, and all of that usually comes from the survival self who's endured, the body has endured all of this and the child self. So I think, um, yeah, it's important for people to get to the root cause of these body image issues rather than constantly trying to change their bodies through dieting and all of these extreme measures, thinking that if my body is just smaller, thinner, whatever, then everything else will be fine because it won't. Right. And and I think most people, when they think about it, realize, oh yeah, well, I did lose 50 pounds, you know, or I was, you know, in this size and I still hated myself or Mm -hmm. hated my body. So. Absolutely. I, I see that all the time where we can see it's not really about the body because a lot of times body image will change day to day. It's so dependent on our mood and our emotions and everything it's else happening in our environment. And yeah, yeah, totally. Somebody looks at you the wrong way and you think, oh, they think I'm fat. Right. You know, or they're judging my hips or, you know, they're looking yeah. at my belly and, 
And then all of a sudden you feel bad about yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously the systemic issues around like racism and fat phobia and all these things that shape how we see our body. Yeah. 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 So what do you think are some of the biggest barriers in helping people overcome um, eating disorders? Well, that's a pretty big question (laughs) 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 to to leave it here till the end. I think there, I mean, there are a lot of barriers. The biggest barrier to care is the fact that in America, we don't have universal health insurance and the health insurances that we do have often don't adequately cover treatment for eating disorders. You know, I've worked in a number of treatment centers and you know, when you have to call the insurance company every two days to get another two days of treatment, that it really ignores the absolute necessity to have time for people to recover. And so I think when, if we ever wake up in this country and decide to pass a universal healthcare law and include mental health issues in it, then that will make things a lot easier. So there are still people in our country who are either underinsured or not insured at all. Um, There are barriers, uh, there are racial barriers in that a lot of um, black women and men don't think, or their families don't think that they should have an eating disorder, so they don't recognize it. And the same is true for therapists and dietitians and other people who treat people of color that uh, they have not been educated to realize that the incidence in black women is the same as it is for white women. So that's another barrier to um, getting care. Um, and And I think the lack of holistic treatment, you know, we have a lot of treatment centers that say they're integrative or they're quote unquote holistic. And what they mean is that they just have a yoga class for clients. Yeah. But I think it's important to have really integrative care where you're working with the dietitians, the therapist, and you're also looking at the nutritional aspects of the eating disorder, you know, from a more of an orthomolecular standpoint of, you know, what, what does it take for our body to make serotonin? Well, it takes a lot of cofactors. Uh, vitamins and minerals and so on. And if we don't have those vitamins and minerals, or we're not able to absorb them because our guts are messed up from laxative abuse, then that's going to have a dramatic effect on our ability to heal. And then I think finally, you know, the willingness uh, of, and the, um, the ability of treatment programs to really deal with trauma, I think is not that great. And insurance doesn't pay for trauma treatment. They pay for refeeding someone with anorexia who's underweight, um, but they don't pay for helping that person deal with the root cause of why they have the eating disorder in the first place. And everybody thinks you can do trauma treatment, you know, and still be underweight or still be in crisis, still be binging and purging, for example. And it's very difficult to do that. So Mm -hmm. I just think we're unrealistic in our treatment for um, both substance use disorders and eating disorders. And we're not really giving people what they need. Mm -hmm. We're We're giving them the minimum of care, but we're not giving them good care Mm -hmm. for the most part. 
And I'm not talking about any particular center. I know everybody's doing the best they can given our horrible insurance system, but without payment for these services, um, it's gonna be hard for people to fully recover. And then we end up losing people out of the workforce. We end up spending money over and over when they relapse. It's, it's sort of stupid mm -hmm. in my mind, because you know, you, you, you nickel and dime people, uh, treatment centers, so they only have two days here, a day here, or we have to call in three days here. And then you send, the patient goes out and they relapse and they have to pay all over again. So yeah. why not just pay right up front and give them the time they need? But I'm not an insurance executive, <laughs> so I can't help with that. <laughs> no, I see that a lot. You know, it's, it's really sad too, because it also communicates the message to clients that, oh, you're not really that sick. Like you're right. good, you're good enough now. And right. you haven't even gotten to the root issues. And you maybe, I see treatment centers that insurance will deny the person, even though they're not fully weight restored, which is just, yeah, they, insurance providers need more education of. <laughs> well, but you know, it's really the voters because yeah. what happens is when, you know, when uh, President Obama, he had a, to fight to get Obamacare passed. And we've had to fight pretty much every couple of years to keep it in place. And Obamacare still didn't completely go as far as we needed to go. So what we need is what every other developed country in the world has, like Germany, uh, the UK, they all have national health insurance mm -hmm. so that everybody can get care. And we need the same so that people don't, we don't have to ration care mm -hmm. and that people who need the help can get it. But nobody thinks about that when they go to the polls and vote for someone who is against national health insurance because it's going to quote unquote, you know, I'm not going to get into politics, but <laughs> it's going to, you know, it's going to go against their political uh, party. But um, it really, at this point, the studies show that um, almost every American knows someone, for example, with a substance use disorder. Yeah. So it's no longer substance use disorders are no longer just being seen in poor communities. They're everywhere and the same with eating disorders. And so we now have families who are bankrupt because they have had to pay for more treatment for their loved ones or, you know, have had to come out of pocket for care that is the insurance companies are refusing to pay. But yet and still America is not looking at that and saying, oh, wait a minute, if I had had universal health care, I wouldn't have had to take out a second mortgage on my house or grade my 401k to save my child. Mm -hmm. And I, I think agree. that's the missing piece is that we're not connecting that dot with, you know, we can blame the insurance company, but we should be blaming ourselves because we're not really holding them to account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. And it's such a systemic issue. It's not, we can't blame treatment centers or even individual providers that, like myself, I don't take insurance directly because they don't reimburse therapists a livable wage in San Diego. Yeah. So it's it's a bigger issue, um, and these a lot of these issues started in systemic problems like racism or sexism or any of the isms, right? Like it's mm -hmm. a systemic problem, and there needs to be a systemic solution. Yeah. Yep. And I think until 
we recognize that we have the power that through the power of our vote, then we're going to continue to struggle with these problems. Agreed. Well, when you on that sad note, <laughs> yeah, on that sad note, um, <laughs> when you hear the term body justice, what does that mean to you, Dr. Ross? Um, I'm not sure, you know, um, I, I can say what I would see is, is that, um, for me, it, I guess it means more that, um, I'm not sure I want to answer this because I don't want to, <laughs> there's, you know what, there's a lot of politics in body, uh, you know, the body social justice movement. Yeah. Um, I can state my own beliefs, which is that, you know, I really strongly have always believed in health at every size and uh, feel like that's something we should be, you know, really promoting mm -hmm. in kindergarten. We should be promoting it in kindergarten because yeah. that's where it starts to go badly. And I think um, I also tell my patients to tell their doctors, their family members, anyone who stigmatizes them that my body is not your business. Mm -hmm. See, it's not even my business because the body does what the body want, need, wants and needs to do. Yeah. You know, the body has its own wisdom. And for me, that's the most important thing to understand. I'm not, a, uh, I think body positivity is great, but I don't think most people can go from hating their bodies to feeling positive about their mm -hmm. body. Uh, there may be a middle ground of body neutrality, um, but I'm not one who, you know, promotes, um, like, I don't like a lot of the anger that, that happens around these issues, right. even though we have anger around a lot of social justice issues. So I understand it. Um, and I support people who have those feelings. Um, but that's not how I approach the situation. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and let, I, um, let me ask you, what what does body justice mean to you? Oh gosh, <laughs> it is such a big, all-encompassing term. And I think to me, because I focus so much on eating disorders, I'm looking at all the systemic issues that influence bodies. So that is everything from racism, sexism, fat phobia, um, transphobia, but also things bigger issues, or not bigger, but other issues like un universal health care and mm -hmm. all the and environmental justice and um, all these things that influence how we see our bodies and how we take care of our bodies and the ability we have to even take care of our bodies, like so many intersections that I yeah. agree. It's, it's such a well, long you, answer. You, you have really uh, said it in a lot better more, uh, way than I have, but I think we're on the same page with that. Yeah, I think so too. So where can listeners find you? And I know you've got a book you want to talk about. So go ahead. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I am doing a free book giveaway. So any of your listeners can get a free copy of my book, The Food Addiction Recovery Workbook. And you can actually, uh, I'll, I'll give you a link that you can put in the show notes, but people can also go to my website, which is carolynrossindy.com. And it's Carolyn has been misspelled a lot lately, but it's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N Ross, R-O-S-S-M-D.com. And everything is there. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Thank you, Austin. It's been a pleasure.